Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 24 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries both natural and supernatural from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about what on earth happened at Dyatlov Pass. I hope I'm saying that right. (laughs) I'm Don Bettinelli, and I'm joined as always by Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. It's close enough. Uh, We've had I'm looking forward to talking about this. We've had a lot of requests. Yes. For people from people to talk about what happened at Yatlov Pass. And it is really mysterious. Excellent. But first, uh, I want to take a moment as as we've started to do it recently to thank our patrons who make this show possible, all of our patrons. But today, especially, we want to mention a few by name, Robert H., Daniel W., Harry R, Johnny S, and Layla L. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we're calling them up by name now, but we want to thank all of our patrons. Their yeah. generous donations make uh, at, at sqpn.com slash give. They make it possible for us to continue t- doing Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at sqpn.com. And you can join them in your support by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Also, I want to take a moment to, uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of a tip. Uh, if you own an Amazon Echo device, uh, one in which you can say um, uh, uh, Alexa and give a command, you can listen to the podcast by just saying out loud, and I'm going to say that, say it now, so it might activate your device if you're listening over a speaker. Mm-hmm. Alexa, play Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World podcast. Make sure you always add the word podcast there. And then it will say, now playing Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World uh, podcast from uh, TuneIn or iHeart or something along those lines, one of the directories. But uh, it's a great, it's an easy way to to listen to the latest episode of the show, whatever yeah. the latest episode will be. At when that you're moment. around the house, or even yeah. if you're in your car, if you have a an, an Alexa enabled device in your car, which do exist now. Yes, it's becoming the Alexa is everywhere. So you just speak to the air and and listen to Jimmy and me. <laughs> so. Uh, so let's get to our topic today, which is uh, Dyatlov Pass. What ha- what happened? So um, this is perhaps the most talked about unsolved mystery in Russia. It's their equivalent of the JFK assassination, which we've we've talked about now uh, in in this, uh, and we'll yeah. be coming back to. But not 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 the equivalent in the sense that it involves an assassination. But right. It is a mysterious death that to this day is not solved to people's satisfaction. Exactly. So there's endless discussion of it in Russia. Yes. It's the mystery of it uh, that, uh, that is, that is equivalent. So what happened in February of 1959, 10 highly experienced Russian hikers set out on skis for a lengthy hike in the Siberian wilderness. Nine of them died under very mysterious circumstances. And to this day, what actually happened out there isn't known. Um, so what we do know is in the middle of the night, they cut their way out of their tent and fled into the darkness where they all met their deaths, uh, most by hypothermia, by freezing to death. Uh, the report issued by the official Soviet investigation came to the vague conclusion that they were killed by, quote, an unknown compelling force, end quote. So, of course, yeah, that means them to die. Yes. Uh, that means, of course, that there are numerous theories about what happened to them. And it's hard to find one that refits all the reported facts. 
So that's where Jimmy comes in to help us sort through it all. So what are the um, the claims, the, the more exotic claims, I guess, is the way to yeah. start with this? So there, there are some very exotic claims and some less exotic ones. But among the exotic ones are that they were attacked by a mank. Uh, mank is a word from the Mansi language, if I recall correctly. The Mansi are local people, indigenous people there in Siberia. And it's uh, refers to kind of kind of mythical creatures, but it's used these days a lot for a Russian Yeti or Bigfoot. Mm. And so one of the claims is they died as a result of a Bigfoot attack. Um, also, there were people in the area either that night or on subsequent nights who reported seeing glowing orbs in the sky. And so maybe there these orbs were somehow involved. Uh, and then there are different explanations for what the orbs may have been. Maybe they were alien technology. Maybe they were government technology. Maybe they were a mysterious natural force. Maybe ball lightning or something. Mm. Um, but, uh, but in any event, uh, maybe these orbs had something to do with their deaths. Uh, another exotic theory uh, also appeals to a kind of at least very rare phenomenon. One a gentleman who wrote a book that we'll talk about uh, has proposed that they became disoriented due to infrasound. Uh, infrasound is like very low frequency sound waves that um, can have a physiological effect on humans, including causing disorientation. And uh, the his hypothesis is the wind because they're in this mountain, you know, up on this mountain. And his hypothesis is because. All of the other theories have big problems with them. Maybe it was just the sound of the wind whipping around the mountain in such a way that it set up an infrasound pattern that then did have a physiological effect on them and caused them to uh, panic and become disoriented and flee to their deaths. Mm. So those are some exotic uh, theories. What are the more naturalistic theories, the the, the counterclaims to the exotic well, sort of the least exotic one is they got drunk and became disoriented. Okay. Um, then uh, another is there was some kind of an argument uh, within the group that led to a conflict, which led to them in fleeing into the woods. Uh, another is that high winds, because these, there were very there were strong winds, maybe uh, high winds carried them away or at least one of them away, and then the others went in search of that person. Mm. Um, another is that a fire in their tent either not broke out, but they had a stove in their tent, and they may have, according to one theory, um, had smoke issue from the stove in such a way that they thought the tent had caught on fire, even though when it was later discovered, the tent was not burned. Um, then there's a thought that an avalanche was involved, uh, or maybe they were attacked. If it wasn't an attack by a Yeti, maybe it was attacked by a bear or mm. some other kind of animal. Um, then maybe they were attacked by the local indigenous Mansi people. Or if it wasn't the Mansi, maybe they were attacked by the Russian military after stumbling across secret atomic experiments or other government activity. Hmm. 
Interesting. And there's some evidence that you can cite in favor of just about any of those. Okay. Including the atomic one, but we'll get there. So uh, what do we know? What are the facts that are uh, not in dispute here? Well, uh, okay, so let's start with who these people were. Uh, They were all young people. Uh, They were between, except for one, they were all between the ages of 20 and 24. Uh, They tended to be students at a local uh, university in uh, Sverdlovsk. Uh, that was its name at the time. It subsequently changed its name. Um, but they were students there, except for there was this one guy who was 38. He was the oldest one. He was almost twice the age of the others. And he had been a soldier in World War II. Um, they, the group of 10 hikers included uh, eight men and two women. They were all very experienced hikers. Um, they, In fact, the reason they were going on this hike was because they were attempting to get certified. They apparently had their hiking club or whatever, hiking association, had a certification ranking, and they were wanting to be certified at the highest level. So they'd already Mm. achieved all of the other levels. Now they're doing their hiking endurance test to get their final level certification. So they were already very skilled at this. They were very smart. They had done this lots of times, and they knew what they were doing. So they weren't inclined to make rookie mistakes out here. Uh, They had interesting, uh, very interesting personalities. One of the things in the book that I mentioned, it's called Dead Mountain. And uh, it's it's a very interesting read. Uh, It jumps back and forth in time between them and the investigation and then the modern author's investigation of all of this. And there are some fascinating stories about these people. You really get it. They were, it sounds like they were fun young people. To be around, they had interesting personalities. There was this one uh, woman who was very attractive, who um, was just universally popular. Everybody loved her, and uh, she would. They recall how uh, at this one point, they on their way to the hike, they've they they're dumped off in this town by a train, and they have to fill the day before their next connection arrives. And so they go to a school and ask, "Can we sleep here?" And the school says, sure, you can sleep here. But in the afternoon, after the classes are over, you need to entertain the school children. (laughs) And these are like grade school children. So they improvise. They put on a show for these kids, for these grade school kids. And they're like telling stories and songs and all kinds of performances and stuff. And the like the 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 young woman that's uh, the really popular one, the kids love her so much that they don't want her to leave. (laughs) <laughs> they like want her to stay and and head their youth group, um, and so they were like crying when she has to go to get on the train and stuff. <laughs> um, there's another guy who's kind of the spokesman for the group who who's like got this big red beard, and so his nickname in Russian is Baroda. They beard, hey mm. beard, get over here. <laughs> um, they uh, they have just interesting personalities. One of the interesting personalities is the man who's leading the group. He's one of the young people. Uh, his name is Igor Dyatlov, and it's his name that is now attached to the mountain pass that they went through because originally it didn't have this name. It's called Dyatlov Pass because he was Igor Dyatlov was the leader of this party and that died there. And so that's why it's called that now. Um, but he was apparently a stern guy. Uh, he was very competent. Um, but he was also like very business oriented, very focused on stuff. And he had these kind of rigid requirements 
for some aspects of the hike, like he made one of them was personal hygiene and he made everybody wash their feet every night, <laughs> even if they didn't have hot water. <laughs> okay. So that kind of it just like wash my feet in Siberia without hot water at night. Are you crazy? That kind of gives you a sense of his force of personality. Okay. Um. So so there's these are really interesting people, and Dead Mountain uh, gives you a really nice sense of them. Okay. And so, uh, so th- these are who they are. So mm-hmm. what what happened? What do we know? What uh, would that happen? Okay, so they left Sverdlovsk on January 23rd of 1959. So this is in the middle of the Russian winter, mm. which is part of the point. This is a winter hike they're going on for like a couple, three weeks to fulfill their requirement. There was this whole list of requirements they had to fulfill on this hike. Like it has to be, you have to spend this many days in an uninhabited area and things like that. Okay. Uh, so they travel by train and other means uh, to get to the area where the hike is going to begin. And then on January 28th, one of the members who's, he's always kind of been frail. He's always had some health problems. His name is Yuri Yudin and his health problems are acting up. And so he turns back and he thus saved his life. And so that's how the 10 became nine hmm. is this one guy, his health problems acted up. He turned back, went back to Sverdlovsk and saved himself. Um, so, you know, thank God for him. He he ended up surviving. The the rest of them then continued on. And we actually know a bunch, even though they're even though they died. We know a bunch about what happened to them after the hike began, because they brought cameras with them and they took all these pictures um, of what they were doing. And so they're like clowning around in the snow and they're having fun together and you have pictures of them eating and doing all kinds of stuff and hiking, obviously. And so we uh, we know about them from the photos. We also know about them <clears throat> because they kept diaries. Uh, and so they're writing about their experience. They're keeping like a group diary and stuff. And so we know what's going on with them from that. So we, we actually have a good bit of information about what's happening with them up until February 1st, which is the last day that they took pictures and the last day that they um that they wrote in the diary and it's the last day that they lived um they uh got to on this day they began moving through a mountain pass at a mountain called Cholat Siachel which in the Mansi language it's translated different ways but one of the things it's translated as is dead mountain um hence the name of the book mm-hmm. um it also can mean like barren mountain like it doesn't have game on it right don't go here for animals um but but it it, dead mountain is the way it's often translated in english so they start making their way up up and they're driven off course by a snowstorm and they're above the tree line at this point so they're you know they're on this barren part of the mountain they're not in the forest anymore and Dyatlov decides we need to set up camp here and then we'll spend the night here and then we'll um, we'll we'll make more progress tomorrow. We'll get back on course, get back to where we're heading, uh, which is still like they're not even supposed to be there for another 10 days. So uh, this is kind of towards the first part of their of their trip. And that night they all die. 
on Dead Mountain. I, I suppose they. Yeah. It's translated as Dead Mountain in English because that Barren Mountain wouldn't be as good of a title for a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's another mountain nearby. I was reading a little bit uh, online in preparation uh, uh, that was called. Uh, which translates as "Don't go there." So this sounds like a, uh, a forbidding kind of, area to go into. Yeah, not like Siberia itself isn't a forbidding area to go into, but <laughs> this is even these places yeah. specifically. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so they all they, they've all they all die that uh, tragically on that mountain that night. When when does the investigation? When do people start to notice that they're they're go- they they haven't shown up? Well, they start to notice on February 12th because they were supposed to get to their destination on February 12th. So that's like 10 days after they died. You know, mm-hmm. the, the last entry is on February 1st. They died on the night of February 1st to, into February 2nd. Then 10 days later, they're supposed to get to their destination and send a telegram back to Sverdlovsk. Now, so that's the when it gets to be February 12th and they haven't sent the telegram, that's the first anyone starts worrying. Now, when... Uh, the Yuri Yudin, the guy who turned back, uh, left the party. Igor Dyatlov told him, I don't, th- we're not making enough time. I think it's going to be a few days longer. So I think it's going to take us till like February 15th to get there. And so initially they didn't know back in Sverdlovsk about that. Um, in fact, some of the officials didn't realize that Yudin was back. So they it didn't initially talk to him. But then they did and they found out, okay, they're thinking it's going to take a little longer wait till the 15th, the 15th passes, and they don't hear from them. And so then it gets to be February 20th, and their relatives are getting frantic now because Mm. they're way overdue. They should have been heard from. And the relatives demand that an investigation get started. And so they start a search crew. um, And they also, because it's a disappearance, they also open a criminal investigation because, you know, it could be any number of things. So they open that as well. They start searching the area. On February 26th, the searchers find the tent. Okay. But nobody's in the tent. And what's in the tent is kind of strange. They have like, um, one of the things they find is the back of the tent has been cut. And they don't know why. They're thinking maybe someone cut, like armed attackers cut into the tent or something. Um, They also have like frozen food out on the table, like some frozen ham and frozen bacon that, uh, according to some accounts, had been cooked and and like, I think, a cup of frozen coffee or something. So they, it's like they were eating or in the process of some of them were in the process of eating when whatever happened happened and none of them are here. Uh, so they report back, the searchers do, that they found the tent. And then the next day they come back and they search more and they find several things. First thing they find is a set is nine sets of footprints leading away from the tent. Nine and only nine sets of footprints. Okay. So it doesn't look like other people or things were there. They then find the bodies of two of the men under a cedar tree, about a mile from, uh, down the mountain from the tent. So that it, apparently they tried to make their way down into the forest. Okay. from above the tree line where the camp was. They also, uh, between the those two men under the cedar tree and the tent, they find the bodies of another man and one of the two women uh, who were located between uh, 1,300 and 300 yards away from the tent. And it looks like they were kind of maybe coming back to the tent 
when they were overcome. Um, so that's February 27th. On March 5th, they find the body of another man also in the same area under a foot of snow. So they've now find, found five of the bodies. There are four missing. And <clears throat> it's two months before they find the others. We jump from March 5th to May 4th. So this is three months after, a little more than three months after they all died. Mm -hmm. They find the remaining three men and one woman at the bottom of a ravine, and they're badly decomposed. Mm. Um, the report uh, concludes, after all the investigation is done, that six of them died of hypothermia or freezing to death. Three of them died from injuries. These are like three in the ravine. One of them has a fractured skull. They've got fractured ribs. But the weird thing, or one of the weird things, is they don't have a lot of external trauma. It's hmm. not like they've been beaten or, you know, severely concussed. They don't have the bruising and, you know, abrasions and things that you would expect. If someone for... fell from a ravine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as a result, that's why the um, the official report concludes that they were killed by a unknown compelling force because this this injury pattern doesn't reflect anything that's clearly identifiable. Okay, so it's strange. So so what else? What other strange uh, elements to this story? Because there's more, yeah. even more strange right. stuff. Yeah, that's only the beginning. The unknown <laughs> compelling force is only the beginning of the weirdness. So, okay, they upon forensic examination, it turns out that the cut in the tent was from the inside. It huh. was the hikers themselves who cut their way out, as determined by a microscopic examination of the fibers in the cut. Um, so, so whatever happened, they wanted to get out of that tent bad and not from the front. They wanted, and so they went out the back. Um, also, they were severely underdressed. None of them are wearing coats. And, you know, remember, they were driven here. They were driven off course by a snowstorm. Right. There are high winds. There's snow. It's like 30 below or something. None of them are wearing coats when their bodies are found. Two of them are not wearing pants. Huh. And none of them are wearing shoes. Some of them are barefoot and others just have socks. So they're bizarrely underdressed. Now, some people have suggested this may be a case of what's called paradoxical undressing. One of the phenomena that is known to result from hypothermia is as your body temperature plummets, you can have the illusion of being really hot. Right. And so sometimes when people are experiencing hypothermia, they will paradoxically take off clothing because they feel so hot. Um, and that actually makes the problem worse. Um, but uh, but why would all nine of them? Right. If it were paradoxical undressing, why all nine of them? I mean, maybe one or two of them, but all nine having exactly this symptom? And they would have found the clothing scattered along their path, perhaps. Well, and, and they did also, I mean, they found, well, they would have found some of it. And they did find some that was scattered. Also, though, apparently some of them were wearing clothes that they had taken from others who presumably had already died. And now they're scavenging their clothing, clothing to try to stay warm. Okay. But, but none of them have coats. Few of them don't have pants and none of them have shoes. Um, 
two of them, two of the men, are missing their eyes. Their 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 eye sockets are empty. Okay. One of the women is missing her tongue. Her tongue is just not there. Okay. Um, the skin and hair color of these people, or the skin and hair of some of these bodies, has been strangely altered. The color, so um, so their hair is looking in, in some of them like it's gotten. They're twenty years old and it's gray, and their skin has this dark, like orangish or something, um, coloration. Um, some of them have singed flesh and singed clothing and two of the men are wearing clothing that is radioactive oh wow yeah so <laughs> there's lots of weirdness here right so you know being uh siberia they would have a lot of experience with frostbite hypothermia they would they would be able to yeah. recognize like skin gets discolored when it yeah. when it's killed by that but so they would have known oh this is the, this is Skin discoloration that is not normal well, hypothermia. That no, actually that's that's and we'll get to some okay. of the kind of red herring evidence. Um okay. but just this is some strangeness that's that is reported. And the question then is what's gonna be the explanation? Okay. I'm I'm jumping ahead again. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Natural. It's a fascinating story. As, as, yeah. as anybody who learns about this, you immediately start thinking through what are the options here. Exactly. This is great. X Files or movie or you know uh, which I'm and sure that has, has been yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, all right so let's continue on then um, d is there a faith perspective on this well obviously um, you know we should pray for these folks souls it's never too late to do that um, but otherwise there there doesn't appear to be any particular faith dimension in this case oh so let's let's then turn to the the reason perspective what are, what does reason do, uh, do to help us understand what's going on. Well, we sort of immediately confront an evidence problem. You know, reason relies on evidence, and we have kind of two evidence problems in assessing what's going on here. The first one is there are a bunch of conflicting claims out there. It's kind of like the JFK assassination. If you read books on the JFK assassination by different authors coming from different perspectives, as I've done you're going to find contradicting claim, contradicting claims where one author will say this happened. Just as a matter of basic fact, you know, not as a matter of interpretation, but just mm -hmm. here's what the facts are. And another author will say, no, these are the facts. And so without an agreed set of facts, it's hard to draw conclusions in some cases. And so we'll see as we go further into some of the theories where those conflicting claims cause us a problem. Also, uh, the second evidence problem is all of the primary source documents are in Russian. And even though they've all been declassified now, back in the day in 1959, um, which was just kind of a, towards the beginning of Nikita Khrushchev's uh, premiership, it was standard policy. Anything weird happens, you clamp down on it. That right. was just standard operating procedure in the Soviet Union. So a lot of this material was not made public. But now that the Soviet Union is gone, all of this material is now available. We have, uh, you know, lots of information from the official investigation, but it's all in Russian. And so that makes it harder for people here in the West to uh, to to interpret it. And even like uh, Donnie Icar in his book, Dead Mountain, he admits repeatedly he's kind of relying on Google Translate to help him communicate with Russian officials about 
well, what does this mean and stuff like that. Mm. So given the translation problem, it's not easy to access all of the um, primary sources. And consequently, that's probably one of the things leading to some of the conflicting claims. Okay. So um, what about some of the uh, the even more exotic theories that are out? Yeah. So here's here's where we kind of have to remember the first rule of evidence, because it's fascinating to think about really exotic things like, uh, you know, could this be aliens? Could this be time travelers? Could one of them have a cold virus that suddenly mutated into a mind altering, panic inducing virus <laughs> during the course of a single night? I mean, there are an infinite number of things that you could propose to explain this, but um, but that's not the way of reason. The way of reason is to say, what evidence do we have to support particular theories? You don't get to invent evidence right. in order just because something's possible doesn't mean you have evidence supporting it. And so we don't have any evidence of time travelers here. We don't have any evidence of a and this is just mine. I just made it up. The sudden cold virus that mutates into a panic inducing <laughs> virus. You know, we don't have any evidence of that. So we're not going to talk about those possibilities. Um, the closest we'll come is talking about the orbs or the glowing lights that okay. people saw. But even those, there are other theories besides aliens. We don't we're not going to have evidence of aliens in particular. Um, so if you set aside theories we don't have evidence for, we can then look at the evidence we do have. And some of those pieces of evidence I would classify as sort of red herrings. There are things that are going to mislead us if we focus too much on them because they have reasonable explanation, reasonable explanations like the missing eyes and the missing tongue. These are bodies that were found months later. Oh. They have had time to have decomposition uh, of soft tissues. Uh, they have had time for predators to mm -hmm. come along and take bites. Uh, so, uh, they're in a watery environment with all that snow that is now melting in the month of May. So, um, so the missing eyes and the missing tongue, while they sound weird when you hear them, it's probably just ordinary natural processes that are responsible for that. Okay. Same thing with the hair and skin discoloration, because you're going to have the effect of cold on these people, including right. a kind of natural mummification process that happens as a result of all the cold and the snow and the wind and everything like that. So that's not, you were very perceptive, Dom, to immediately say, could that be natural? Yes, you were right. That could be natural. This okay. is not particularly weird. Um, the singed flesh and the clothing uh, may be explained by the fact they also found the remains of a kind of makeshift fire that some of them tried to start in the woods. Okay. And so that could be where where that came from. Um, in terms of the missing clothing, <clears throat> why are they also underdressed? Well, it, you know, we mentioned the problem with paradoxical undressing. That's like, why would it happen to all nine of them? Well, they were going to bed. And furthermore, um, they're in a tent with a stove and blankets. And Dyatlov has this insistence that they all wash their feet every night. <laughs> right. So maybe they just took off their shoes for bed or maybe they he, they were just doing the foot washing ritual when all of this happened. And so we don't need to we don't it's not it's weird that they're also underdressed, but there's a plausible natural explanation for it. 
which is, you know, they were it, it, they were in a heated tent getting ready for bed and they whatever caused them to flee, they didn't have time to get dressed. So okay. that explains that. One of the weirdest sounding things is the radioactive clothing. Right. Um, so why? I mean, could they have stumbled across some secret nuclear thing or could that be evidence of aliens? Well, <clears throat> the thing is, when you measure or when they measured the radioactivity of these clothes, it was not very far above normal. Um, they're all objects have a certain amount of radioactivity to them. That's normal. Everything does that. That's why when you wave a Geiger counter over anything, you will hear some clicking. It's when you hear a spike in the clicking that you know something is abnormally radioactive. Mm -hmm. And these two, these items of clothing that two of them had were abnormally radioactive, but not by much. Um, by modern standards, they were still like within safety tolerances and things like that. Um, and so could there be another explanation for this mild radioactivity? Well, this was 1959. It was the Cold War. Russians were doing atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons in, you know, not too far away. And so mm -hmm. radioactivity from that could have drifted over on the wind and some, you know, particles of it could have settled out on these clothes, especially over the three months that they'd been laying there or however long in a particular case. Mm -hmm. And then... There's the fact that the two guys with the radioactive clothes worked at places where they used radioactive materials. <laughs> okay. This could be workplace contamination that they've just got on their clothes and are happened to bring these clothes with them on the on the hike. Right, because uh, you said they were students at uh the Ural Polytechnic Institute, some of them too, which yeah. if it's an engineering or science school, that sort of stuff could be there too. Okay. Yeah, and and specifically, we know so that they worked at at like labs and businesses that did use radioactive materials. I think one of them was like at a plutonium processing plant or something <laughs> like that. Of course. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, so those though all those pieces of evidence are kind of red herrings. They don't okay. really lead us anywhere useful. So, what about the other evidence that we had uh, uh, from from this this night? Well, we have strong evidence that of s something that happened that caused them to flee in panic as a group. Um, the fact they cut themselves out of the back of the tent means that they really wanted to get out quick. And that was the most expedient. Either there was something at the front of the tent that was scaring them or um, the, it, they wanted to get out so quickly. They didn't want to like unthread the uh, opening of the tent. They didn't want to take the time to do that because, of course, they'd sealed it against the weather. Um, and it's not like they'd had, you know, easy zippers or something. Right. So, um, so they, they cut themselves out and they ran out all of them un underdressed and all nine of them left at once. So like, whatever this is, it's not something that like, maybe there's an emergency outside that some of us could go deal with. It's like, no, all of us have to have to get out of this tent right now. And so something happened that caused a sudden panic-induced flight of all nine. And the question is, what? So there's a <clears throat> couple different things that could cause everyone to, to run out that we mentioned uh -huh. in the theories. Something where they get attacked, and then the other the, the what other kinds of theories. So what about the attack right. theories? 
Yeah. So, okay, so among the attack theories is what I mentioned at the top of the show that they were attacked by a yeti. Um, and there's even a little bit of evidence to support this because you know they took all of those photos on their trip, right? Mm-hmm. And one of them is of a kind of distant, blurry figure in the snow that looks dark and that some people have interpreted as a Yeti. It even kind of is in this weird posture that doesn't look like the way a human would normally stand. And so um, uh, so, so there's that that people have pointed to as evidence of a Yeti attack. Also, uh, on their last day, they had before they before they uh, uh, before this incident happened, someone in the group had written a a fake newspaper just to entertain the group because, you know, they were big on stories and songs and poems and mm-hmm. they would stay up late singing songs and reciting poetry and stuff. Somebody had made a fake newspaper because they were in the Oriton Mountains. It was called the Evening Oriton, and it had a variety of articles uh, like. Uh, one on a scientific investigation of can one blanket and one stove keep nine hikers warm <laughs> and and tomorrow there's going to be a sem- a seminar on love and hiking by Dr. so and so and Dr. so and so the two women who okay. were on the group yeah um and so just you know harmless stuff just to entertain the group uh but one of the things was an article about a scientific finding that mank that read yetis are real hmm and so yetis were on their mind, or mink at least, were on their mind. They knew about this local folklore, and they referenced it in this fake newspaper they made. And then they have this photo. Now, you could say, okay, maybe the photo has been completely misidentified. Um, it, maybe it's just a person in the distance. Maybe it's even a person posing like a yeti to right. make a deliberately blurry photograph for the fake newspaper. Right. Or some, or for their friends when they get back and say, "Ooh, look at what we saw." Um, so it, it, the photo isn't necessarily proof. For me, the two things that are dispositive here are if I if you put yourself in the position of a person that's in a tent and there's a yeti menacing the tent outside, presumably howling, maybe throwing rocks at it. My inclination is going to be to stay in the tent, right? You know, it offers shelter. Um, I'm probably not going to cut my way out of the tent. I mean, for something like that, uh, even if I do, the Yeti should leave tracks. Right. And there's only nine set of footprints leading away from the tent. There's no Yeti prints. Do, uh, do, uh, sorry, it occurs to me. Do we know if they were armed at all? Did they have a hunting weapon or like when people go out into bear country in in in, yeah. in the U.S., they'll bring something to sometimes they'll bring something to defend themselves. Do we know yeah. whether they were armed or not? I, from what I've read, I don't think they were armed. They had like a pickaxe that they could use, but it they didn't have like a gun or okay. anything. Or as far as I'm aware, they obviously had a knife because they use that to cut their way out of the tent. Of course, but I I don't think they had any ranged weapons, as far as I'm aware. Okay, okay, that's uh, so uh, so no footprints, uh, which which is a problem for for all the attack theories then. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, animals. Same thing. Why aren't they if they were attacked by a bear or something? Why are there no animal tracks? 
it's not just that the tracks would have gotten erased by the snow. The human tracks were still there. Mm-hmm. So if there were animal tracks, they should be there too. Um, also with animals, why would you leave the tent again? That's your best shelter. Um, if it was locals or the Russian military, here I could kind of see sneaking out the back. If if the locals were up front at, or the military was up front or armed people were up front of the tent and you're talking back and forth with them, you might keep that conversation going while someone cuts a hole in the back of the tent so you can get out that way. That would make a little sense to me. Um, but the locals were friendly. The Mansi people were not known to attack others. Mm-hmm. And um, and again, there are no footprints. There should right. be footprints if there was some menacing party outside. So all of the attack theories have problems with them. And I'm therefore inclined to look at the non-attack theories. Okay. And uh, those, again, uh, we mentioned at the top uh, of the show, but... Um... But yeah, let's let's go through those again. Then, so uh, was so the, the drinking sim- one? The simplest is yeah, the, they got drunk and they became in, disoriented and they fled the tent and died of hypothermia and maybe some of them fell in a ravine. Well, here's one place where we get conflicting evidence claims. According to one source I've encountered, several of them were intoxicated. And that could lead the others to go after them. If you got to round up four drunk people, it might take the other five of you to do it. Right. Um, so, so that's a possibility. Um, but it's still, it's still kind of tough, especially if the claim on from another source is true that they didn't drink. Uh, they had only a small amount of medicinal alcohol, of alcohol for medicinal purposes with them, and that was found in the tent. They had not drunk it. Mm. So, um, and these kids were like really clean cut. They were, uh, they, uh, for example, they'd even given up cigarettes for the duration of the hike. And this is, you know, 1959 when (laughs) everybody smoked. So they've given up cigarettes for the duration of the hike, except for this one guy I got to respect. His name is Alexander uh Kolevatov, uh he smoked a pipe and he said, You all can give up cigarettes if you want. I'm not giving up smoking my pipe. So <laughs> aces to him. Um but uh but you know these are really clean cut kids. Plus if they so, were if they were chasing some of the drunk kids, they others would would get dressed. They wouldn't run out barefoot. Yeah. Presumably. Right. Now you're not gonna yeah. go barefoot and get that far away before you go back for your boots. <laughs> right. So um so there are problems with that. Uh, then there's the fight theory, like maybe a romantic argument erupted or some kind of other argument. But the problem is we don't have evidence for that in this group. They all got along well. They were friends. They're they're spending all this time singing and, you know, staying up all night reciting poetry, and they really enjoy each other's company. Um, there is a little bit of flirting with the girls, but nobody has a serious relationship here. And even if they did, why would you cut your way out of the back right. of the tent? Why not storm off, say, I'm getting out of here, and you, because you, you, you're not leaving the group. It's not like I'm walking back to town from here. <laughs> right. Um, you're going to have to get back with these people, and cutting your way out is not the way to deal with an argument. You might, um, you might you know, say, I need to go walk this off, or you need to go walk this off, or let's step outside and have a fight, but you're not going to cut your way out to do that. You're going to go out the front. 
And then why would all nine of them leave? Right. You know, I mean, presumably the people, not everyone is involved in this fight. Like maybe two hot-headed guys are and they go off, but all seven of the others following them. So that doesn't really sound good either. Then there's the avalanche theory. Um, the avalanche theory has a problem in that if an avalanche occurred, it would leave evidence. I mean, right. avalanches are big events. They bury things under tons of snow. They uh, scatter debris all over the place. They shoosh things away that aren't tied down. There would be evidence if there was an avalanche, and there wasn't. So there was no avalanche. Could they have thought that there would be an avalanche and decide we need to get out of the tent really fast before we get buried? That's an interesting theory. That could explain why they cut themselves out so suddenly. But what would have made them think there's about to be an avalanche? Um, presumably some kind of rumbling or something like that. But then how would they hear rumbling over the wind? Right. And why, once they got out of the tent, would they continue to flee down to the woods and over a mile away instead of just saying, oh, everything's okay? Let's go back in and warm up again. Right. So even if they thought there was an avalanche, it wouldn't explain all of the facts we've got here. So that one's problematic. One of the uh, one of the more promising theories, and I'll have a link to a YouTube video that advocates this one. It's a short video, so you, it's not a long watch, is that they thought there was a fire in the tent. They had this kind of stove that they'd kind of modded for themselves to work with their tent. And it had a stovepipe that, you know, went out the back of the tent. And the proposal is that when they were uh, working with the stove, like the stovepipe got disconnected and it flooded the tent with smoke, mm. making it unbreathable. They then don't have, and they may have even thought, you know, some coals may have flared up. They may have thought there was a fire. And so they don't have time to undo the, the, the straps at the front of the tent. They cut their way out. They flee. Um, but and they, as they get a little farther away, they realize we're not in immediate danger. So that's why the footprints, according to this claim, don't look like they're running. Uh, but because the smoke is makes it impossible to be in the tent and they think there may be a fire or one may be about to start. They continue to make their way down to the forest to try to seek shelter there because that's their next, be next best option if they can't use the tent. Mm. On the other hand, you'd think they might just wait outside the tent and right. see what happens. Right. Because you know, if the smoke clears you and there's no fire, you can go right back in and get under the covers again. Right. Well, if you're that rational then you're making these decisions... You're going to stick around and get your shoes and your pants and your coat. Yeah. yeah. The best you can. You get what it, get what you can out of it. Okay. Yeah. Especially you're going to be spending the night in the woods. You want those shoes and coat. Right. Um, so, so that one's problematic. Um, there's the high wind. Oh, also one other problem I forgot to mention with the avalanche theory. There's been lots of other expeditions in this uh, area. Nobody's ever encountered an avalanche. Oh. So it's not as avalanche prone as one would want for this theory to be viable. Okay. Um, then there's the high winds theory. Maybe one of them is outside. Well, if so, why would he cut his way outside? Why didn't he use the front? And number two, 
if he did get carried away, why would all nine go? And also, the winds weren't strong enough to do that. You need hurricane force winds to really carry off a person who's an adult, and the winds apparently were not that strong. Right. Um, Also, if there were hurricane force winds, why why weren't the footprints obliterated? And if they're experienced, as they say, they would have tied themselves to each other to not get lost in the storm or in the winds and that sort of thing, too. Right. Yeah. Right. So not consistent with their knowledge. That leaves us leads us to infrasound, which it's still it's it's not an attack theory. It's, it is an exotic theory. Um, the problem is that infrasound naturally generated by wind is going to in a way that can induce mass panic in people. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be very rare. Um, so, so I don't know of any other documented cases of that happening anywhere. Hmm. And there may be some, but I'm not familiar with them. Uh, and I would have missed it in the book if I if the author had documented any. So, um, it's kind of it's a long shot. And even in in uh, Dead Mountain, uh, Dunny Iker introduces it as a kind of Sherlock Holmes when every when when the impossible has been eliminated, whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. And mm-hmm. so for him, this is like a, a long shot, even in itself, but it's his best guess. Okay. Uh, that leaves us to the orbs or the glowing lights. And, um, and when people hear about orbs, they often think alien stuff. Right. Um, well, so... Here's one thing with the orbs. They, there were glowing lights seen in the sky by a variety of people in around this time frame. But we don't have particularly strong evidence on the night of February 1st into February 2nd. You know, the, the kids don't mention it in the diary. There is actually a the final photo on the camera is a dark photo with a couple of light things in it, but it's not clear what it what that is. It hmm. could be a photo taken inside the tent of the stove. Uh, it looks like there's some kind of aperture malfunction with the camera um, on this photo. So it's it's not clearly of anything. If it it could could be a photo taken of the night sky, but with something glowing in it. One of the shapes is kind of square. Hmm. Though, which to me seems like maybe it's the open door of a of a of a furnace, right? Um, that's glowing in a darkened room or darkened tent. Um, so the photo is kind of hard to assess. If we think about the 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 glowing orbs, though, there could be a number of things that they are. They could be, um, they could be fireballs. You know, uh, meteors, large meteors coming in and burning up, like the one that blew up in Russia a few years ago. Um, They could be ball lightning, which is a not well understood phenomenon. Even today, we don't understand ball lightning very well. Um, They could be parachute mines, Hmm. which we know when. So the idea with a parachute mine is you you drop it from an airplane. It drops partway through the atmosphere on a parachute and then it detonates before arriving at the surface. So it makes an explosion and you use it to, you know, attack things. And apparently, according to some of the claims, the Russian military was testing parachute mines kind of in this area, kind of around this time. And if you're in a tent 
and you suddenly hear explosions going off outside, your first thought might be, let's all cut our way out of this tent and and flee if there or, you know, if there's explosions happening outside. On the other hand, your thought might be, let's stay in this tent and hunker down. Hmm. You know, if if uh, th- those bodies in the ravine that should that had crushes, you know, internal mm-hmm. injuries. Right. Yes. But no Maybe, external. Uh, that's a, it sounds like it could be pressure wave from an explosion. Exactly. Some kind of broad concussive impact that spread out the force over the body without resulting in the kind of external uh, contusions and bruising that you would expect, but could do internal damage. Mm. So that's a possibility. On the other okay. hand, when they, they did fall in a ravine that was covered with snow, maybe the snow cushioned them from some of those things. The external injuries, but not the, the not hard the rocks. basic or, force. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, so I think uh, I'm I'm still up in the air on this. So, Jimmy, what's your yeah. bottom line on this? Where what do you think happened? My bottom line is I think some kind of non-attack because there would be footprints if it was an attack. Mm-hmm. I think some kind of non-attack panic theory is true. Something happened that caused all of them to decide immediately to flee the tent as quickly as possible without undoing the front entrance and without getting on their clothes. Whatever it was, it was extremely urgent, and uh, and they all fled. Some of them, stu- and they fled a good distance. Some of them f- fell into a ravine and died. Others uh, survived for a little while um, and even apparently came across the bodies of some of their fallen comrades and tried to take their clothes to to stay alive. Um, but, uh, but whatever it was, it was very sudden and very dramatic to make all of them get out that way. And I do not know what it was. Wow. That is, this is quite a story. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, it, it's fascinating. So I know, I know why, uh, everyone wanted us to do, uh, to do this episode. So, uh, so Jimmy, what do, what do we have for further resources for folks if they want to find out more about uh, what happened at the Atlas Pass? So there's uh, there's been a bunch written on this, most of it online. Um, I will warn people, if you search online, especially if you look at it, do not do an image search mm. on Dyatlov Pass because you will come across a lot of photos that were taken by the investigators of the dead bodies. Right. And it's, it's not pretty. Don't yeah. you don't need to look at that. Um, so don't do a photo search, but feel free to look around um uh in the show notes i'll have a link to wikipedia's entry on the diatlov pass incident also i'll have a link to uh wikipedia's article on hypothermia so you can learn about the effects of that including paradoxical undressing um i'll have a link to the book dead mountain by donny icar he's an advocate of the infrasound theory but even if you don't buy his theory it's a fascinating discussion and the mm. way he writes the book bouncing back and forth between what we know happened to them based on their own records. And he's got nice photos of them, too. They're a bunch of cute kids. He's got these great stories about them from their diaries and from people who were interviewed at the time. Then he bounces back and forth between that and the investigation that originally occurred in his own investigation. It's a really interesting read. So Dead Mountain is the book. Also, I'll have a video a link to a YouTube video. It's very brief. It doesn't take a long time to watch. Uh, but it basically is a very, even though it's short, it's a very methodical kind of walk through the evidence. And the uh, author of 
uh, that video, who I think may be French based on his accent. He's not Russian because he mentions working with translators of the Russian documents. Um, but he uh, uh, advocates the tent fire theory, mm. that the tent became filled with smoke and that's what drove them out. Um, and and he possibly in conjunction with the fact with some of them being drunk because he's one of the people that says they some of them were drunk, whereas uh, Donny Icar, based on his investigation, says none of them were. Um, so there's a factual difference there that could affect which theory you buy. Okay. Uh, but that video is also very good and doesn't take a long time to watch. Interesting. All right. So uh, let's move on to mysterious feedback. And this week we're going to be talking about our feedback from our uh, Dr. Feelgood uh, slash JFK episode that we did uh, from YouTube. Aaron says, fascinating. I'd never heard any of this stuff before. And that's a, a very common reaction I've heard from people that I've talked to who've listened mm -hmm. that, that, that n nobody had ever heard this about this, this guy before. Yeah, but the evidence on him is out there. It's solid. He did exist. He did treat Kennedy and a bunch of other celebrities who all talked about him. In, we're talking about Max Jacobson, yeah. a kind of rogue doctor who gave Kennedy these apparent injections of not only vitamins, but methamphetamines. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he's talked about by all these celebrities in their celebrity biographies. Wow. Uh, so uh, from Facebook, Kelly says, this was a surprisingly fascinating episode. I admit when I first saw the topic, I wasn't very interested, but I knew Jimmy and Don would make it compelling. Thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I listened. I had heard of the term Dr. Feelgood, but I never knew the nickname was of an actual person. I knew about JFK's health issues, but not the extent and nature of the treatments he was getting. Great episode. It was very informative. Thank you so much, Kelly. And then Rick uh, on Facebook says, was totally unaware of this whole story. I knew Kennedy was getting injections, but beyond that, I didn't know about Max. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's, it's very uh, you're very well informed, uh, Rick, to even know that he was getting injections because the Kennedy family really tried to keep JFK's health problems on the down low mm. because they really wanted to project the figure of him as this young, vital, strong American president. And uh, and and they didn't want this stuff generally known. And then uh, one bit of feedback from the Tunguska episode we did. Uh, Tammy says on Facebook, when the Tunguska episode post when the Tunguska episode popped up in my podcast feed, I shouted yes and did a little happy dance in the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, Tammy, I also dance in the grocery store. I have since I call dances, I have a playlist of. Uh, of uh of dance tunes that i am teaching myself to call sometimes and <laughs> and some of them are so catchy that as i'm going down the aisle putting things in the cart mentally calling themselves calling the dance to myself i'm also doing a little bit of a dance so <laughs> i totally approve dance as if no one is watching even if they are so yeah. uh what are our headline mysterious headlines this week jimmy okay so the first one you've probably heard of the bermuda triangle but there's an article I linked to on the Nevada Triangle. This is mm. an area in Nevada near Area 51 where more than 2,000 planes have vanished in the past 60 years, according wow. to the story. So going to want to find out what that's all about. Wow. Uh, there may be natural explanations, given that it's near Area 51. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> all right, what else do we have? Maybe the government's holding more than alien hostages out there <laughs> right right so uh, what's next on our list 
Well, so Area 51 is known for developing new military applications. And speaking of military applications, the Russians have built, been at work building a giant combat walker. Mm. So if you not not the kind you see in Empire Strikes Back, but like the kind you see in Gundam mobile suit animes, where right. it's like a person gets in it and it's like their own personal humanoid robotic giant tank. And so uh, take a look at the uh, popular mechanics article on the Russian giant combat walker. I want one. Yeah, just watch out for little fuzzy bear uh, like creatures who might yeah. destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> so and then uh, we have one more headline. Yeah, uh, just today I stumbled, stumbled across an article about uh, an Egyptologist I'm familiar with. Uh, for many years, he he's now retired from this position, but for many years, the head of antiquities in Egypt was a man named Zahi Hawass. He was the one, if you wanted to like do research in the pyramids, you got your permit from him. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of a colorful character. And uh, he has now, he's done a lot of excavation, and he has now talked about how he has been haunted in his dreams by the ghost of of child mummies he dug up wow he he dug up a, he found some child mummies and separated them from where their father was buried to put the mummies on display and then he started seeing the faces of the child mummies in his dreams and then they started reaching out their arms to him in his <laughs> dreams and he put them back with their father and the dream stopped yes <laughs> the sweet dreams, everyone. After, uh, after that, one. don't Good listen night. to this episode late at night. <laughs> wow. Okay, I, I've I've seen uh, interviews with Sawyer Was. He's a very colorful character. Yeah. Well, so that's it from us uh, this time, folks. Uh, what do you think about uh, the mystery of Dialov Pass and, and and the theories that have come up? Do you have a theory? Let us know. Um, you can go to sqpn.com/slash/mysterious or to the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page and leave us some feedback there or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Remember to like the episode on our Facebook page, retweet it on Twitter. Be sure to, if you haven't yet, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or if you're on YouTube, hit the bell to get notifications. And remember that what we told to the top of the show, the trick about asking your Amazon Echo to play the podcast by name. Uh, Share the podcast with your friends, please, and write a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. That helps us grow the community and reach more listeners. You can find those relevant links from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks so much, Tom. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>